Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you technocrats out there, and welcome to another mint condition episode of Tech Talk with the forecaster of the modern frontier, Matthew Dickerson. G'day, Matt, and happy La Nina to you. Yeah, thank you. And I'm a bit worried when you call me a forecaster because my image of a forecaster being a weather forecaster, as they get it wrong about 98% of the time, it seems to me, James. <laughs> well, weatherman, it's the only unaccountable job on the, on the planet, isn't That's it? That's right. You're How can you get something wrong so often? And then, right, we'll see if we're again tomorrow, Bob. I uh, hope you get it a bit better than today, because today your forecast was completely out. So hopefully these forecasts, these snippets of the future we look at, have got... I'd going to say a little bit more, but a lot more accuracy than a weather forecast. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm really looking forward to playing these back in about 10 or 15 years, just yeah. to see how we went. But we uh, might be selective on the ones that we play back in 10 years' time. <laughs> we might cherry pick ever so slightly there. Look at that, we got this one right. If we make enough predictions, I think that's the secret. If you make enough predictions, you're going to get some right, and then we'll look like geniuses, James. Well, uh, you know, you could do it like Nostradamus and use about seven different languages and make it really cryptic, um, maybe when we broadcast <laughs> in future, yeah, so absolutely. that anyone can guess what we did in retrospect. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow, they got it right. Those guys were brilliant. Wow, where are they now? Why can't they predict the future again? What's the share price going to be tomorrow? <laughs> right, well, once again, we've got uh, licorice all sorts of news from around the globe, uh, all aimed to surprise and delight the avid listener on the other side of the internet. Folks, today we take a peek at a new angle that the, the ADF are trialling for the front line. We're going to take a look at some changes to Facebook as they attempt to lead the world through the murky waters of privacy and social media, and we're going to explore what it means to be a modern video gamer. But here's a story to start us off. It's one to excite the triathletes among you. Do you love the cycle leg but are a bit so-so about the swim leg? Or do you love the water so much that you wish you could ride your bike leg through the lake? Well... Do I sound ridiculous or unnecessarily cryptic, perhaps? I'll cut to the chase. From the home of extreme sports and the land of the long white cloud, our friends across the Tasman have gotten a little creative and found a bike for the water. Matt, tell us more. It does sound crazy. I was a bit worried where you were going, James, thinking <laughs> he has been sleeping today. He's just woken up and come up with some crazy dream. <laughs> but the bike on the water does sound clumsy. Now, I can remember from school excursions, we used to go to Canberra, and, of course, the first thing you did when you got there is you got to Lake Burley Griffin, and they used to have the three-wheel. Oh, that tricycle thing. The, yeah, yeah, with the big bubble wheels. Oh, they yeah, were like yeah, tractor yeah. wheels on them, and you'd jump on them and think, this is fantastic, I can pedal on the water. How cool is this? And you would pedal, we'd race on them, of course, and you're pedaling flat out, and then you'd look across to the shore and see someone just moseying along. Yeah, you'd be nice blowing water. a gasket on the water there, just going absolutely flat out <laughs> and going at a slower than a snail. Oh, just terrible. So they weren't Lots of leisurely fun, though. It was, but they weren't that good for a, a transport mechanism. But a company in New Zealand has come up with the concept here of taking some really interesting inventions that we've come up with over the last couple of decades and combine them into one unit. So the first thing they've got is something that looks like a bike. You sit on it like a bike. You pedal like a bike. And so you go, well, there's a bike for a start. That's great. But there's no wheels on it. What they've got underneath the water, as it sits there and floats on the water, is a couple of things. First of all, you've got a nice little 460-watt motor. So it's like an e-bike. Putting the e-bike or the motor in the water, obviously, they've got a good battery in there. They've got it all protected from the water. You don't get electrocuted or you don't start zapping fish as you ride along. But then underneath the water, you don't have just a hole that you sit in and pedal away and you have something like those big bikes with those big tyres you have a propeller and some hydrofoils. Now, hydrofoils I find fascinating. Yeah. 
you look at America's cup yachts, and I think of way back in 1983 when our Prime Minister at the time, after we won the America's Cup, I think it was 132 years that America had owned the America's <laughs> Cup, and Australia came along with its wing kill and one, and the Prime Minister at the time, Bob Hawke, said, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum, his most famous statement. Yeah, I remember that. Leadership. That was a fantastic moment in Australian it, history. Absolutely, yeah. it was. And of course, we had the winged kill, yeah. the Ben Lexan-designed winged kill, and everyone was up in arms about that, and it was against the rules and all the rest of it, but that was a minor modification that helped us a little bit win the Cup, us in the very general general sense of the word. <laughs> no, we, it was us. Yeah, of course, the entire country was behind them there. But America's Cup yachts, I remember doing on the TV a few years ago, back around 2013, and I saw these yachts, these America's Cup yachts, and they're up out of the water. The entire hull was yeah, out of the they're water. they're humongous, and they're, they're, the hull's not even in the water. Not even in the water. They've got a hydrofoil that it's going along. And so effectively a hydrofoil is like an aeroplane's wing underneath the water that then creates lift as the wing or the hydrofoil goes through the water. Same concept with Bernoulli's principle as an aeroplane wing, but under the water. So it mm. lifts the whole boat. I and mean, of course, what you're trying to do is take that big hull out of the water because it's got a huge amount of drag mm. and just have that little tiny hydrofoil, but it does look like it's floating on the water. It looks fascinating. <laughs> so what these this company in New Zealand has done is they've taken that same concept and applied it to a bike, two hydrofoils, one at the rear, one at the front, about a two metre one wide at the rear and 1.2 metres at the front. And once you start pedalling with the aid of your 460 watt motor, electric motor, mm. a little propeller under the water spins and next thing you know, Off you're you going go. along and you're up on the hydrofoils, reduce the amount of drag dramatically and just for a nice casual ride, you can do about 12 kilometres an hour, which isn't too bad. You get a bit energetic you're up to about 22 kilometres an hour. Wow, that's on the, the wind water. in your hair. Yeah. On the water. That's, that's what gets amazing. me. I can see people using these for fun. I saw some videos of people out in the ocean, not too choppy waters, but reasonably choppy, out on a river, all sorts of waterways you can use them. But people are going to start using these to commute. If you've got some waterways, rivers, oh, yeah, even, of course. even a, a bit of the ocean where you might catch a ferry across, for example, or in a harbour, you'll see these being used for commuting because they're incredibly stable. You've got those mm. large hydrofoils and you get along in a decent little clip. So I just think these are fascinating. <laughs> I can hardly wait to have a go on one. You can just see these people uh, in their business suits getting across Sydney Harbour um, from north to south shore or whatever. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Make sure they've got their computer in a maybe a slightly waterproof yeah, sack. <laughs> I was watching the videos as well, yeah. So there's no need to get wet other than a little bit of splash perhaps. But um, yeah, yeah you're, you're up out of the water and yep. you're fanging it. Yeah, it's that's unbelievable. right. unbelievable. So it's a, it's great use of hydrofoil, the technology there, the electric motors, the batteries are getting better. So the combined a whole range of these technologies and said here's a good idea and all these bits and pieces they've pulled from different areas you just wouldn't expect to end up with a bike that's almost skimming across the top of the water floating even across yeah, the top wow. of the water yeah. yeah amazing things are really hotting up in the dog eat dog world of the convenient home brewed coffee the gloves are off and Nespresso have come out swinging at the copycats. They've done an overhaul and Matt it looks like it's time to pick up your team uh, and there's no sitting on the fence here no, you've got to choose, James. You either go the Nespresso pod or the non-Nespresso pod. Oh. Now, that's been the problem. Yeah. For poor old Nespresso, I feel sorry for them. They've got a great coffee machine or a number of coffee machines, and they've got their pods out there, and damn it, the patent for those pods expired in 2012. So as you said, all these copycats... It was... The gates were open. That's and right, and they've started making them, and they're losing sales. At the moment, mm. Nespresso is only managing to sell 14 billion coffee capsules oh, each, year, each year. And I don't know how big the market is. Nespresso wouldn't tell me how big the market was in the copycat market. But if they're selling 14 billion 
capsules, then I guess there's a fair few being sold by the other companies as well. And Espresso doesn't like that. It's our design. It's our concept. Yeah. Don't you steal that idea? Well, legally they can, of course, but they don't like the idea. Maybe I would say make sure that yours is competitively priced and good enough product that everyone wants to buy it, yeah. but ignore that for the moment. <laughs> Nespresso is going to use technology to get around this. So they've got their latest coffee machine, and the capsules on that are designed in such a way that they think, and I'm not convinced about this, but they think you can't copy them. They've got a barcode built into the actual capsule itself, and then when it drops in the machine, the machine reads that barcode and then determines how hot you need the water, how much water you need to suit that particular capsule, and makes your coffee to perfection. Well, that's pretty clever. It is. But I don't understand why it's making it copy-proof, because surely another manufacturer could look at that barcode and say, well, I can replicate that. I can make a copycat capsule that has that same barcode that effectively has the same parameters, and there we go. I can sell a copycat one. Nespresso are convinced otherwise. They're saying you must buy our capsules with this. Maybe it's a bit of bluff, bit of marketing bluff. Buy this machine, buy our capsules only, and it'll give you all this extra information. Let's see what happens there. But there's obviously a market there for the copycats, so let's see how they go. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. And look, I just wonder if uh, there's going to be a little booby trap in the machine that if you do use a copycat copycat, uh, pod that doesn't jam up the system and you've got to get a special uh, Nespresso technician in to to clear it out. (laughs) Well, the same sort of thing happened with printer cartridges, of course, with various companies have genuine-only printer cartridges, and if you put a non-genuine one in, it gives you a big warning and Mm. tells you the world's going to explode or something Mm. terrible is going to happen to you. I just don't know how they're going to make it so that only that machine can read that, even if they have things like an RFID chip in there or yeah. some sort of near-field communications or a barcode. You can replicate all those. That's so right. So you can make someone If it can else. be made, it can be replicated. Exactly right. And lots of companies around the world, that's what they do. They reverse engineer these things so you can copycat them. But anyway, at the moment, that's where they believe it's headed, trying to use technology in a good old-fashioned coffee machine, and good luck to them. And we're all going to have to decide an espresso or otherwise. Mm, that's right. Brakes on cars have come a long way. From cabling to hydraulics, from drum to disc and advanced materials and even anti-lock systems. The question, I guess, is, is there any innovation left for the wonderful world of brake systems? Well, you'd think innovation would come to a stop in that field. Ah, very clever. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Only <laughs> my best dad jokes for you. <laughs> but you're right, there's some incredible innovations that have happened over the years. I probably think in my lifetime, anti-lock braking systems are the number one thing that's made a difference to how safe it is driving a car in terms of braking at least. And they were introduced back in the early 70s, but didn't become common to much longer after that. And I can remember I was doing a driving course one day and it was fascinating because the driver started off, had the wet track to drive on, had some cones out there replicating people or buildings, whatever it might be. He said, we're going to go along at 60 kilometres an hour. And then when I tell you we're going to brake, and as hard as you can, and then swerve through those cones. I said, oh, that sounds pretty easy. Yeah, sure. And we went along there, and I did what he told me to do, and he said, so let me guess. You learned to drive back in the days before anti-lock braking system. I said, well, uh-huh. didn't the grey hairs give that away? Yeah. But, <laughs> but yes, you're right. And he said, I could detect that I told you to brake. You brake. That was great. And then when you started turning, you lifted off the brakes ever so slightly. You mm. may not have even been aware of that. And I wasn't because when I learned to drive, I learned to drive in an old Valiant, a VC Valiant. It was a mm. very old, clunky, heavy machine, and you only had to – Think about turning the steering wheel and the, lock, the brakes would lock up or the wheels would lock up and you'd be out of control. So, yes, I did just out of habit from all my years of driving, lift off ever so slightly and just turn. And it took me a few goes to actually get to the point where I could 
jam on that brake as hard as I could and turn through these cones on yeah, a wet right. road. And I got to the end and I went, that was absolutely fascinating. What a <laughs> what a wonderful system. I never would have done that in the real world if I had yeah. to stop to swerve for a dog or a person or whatever it might have been because you just inherently were just lifting off the brake because you didn't want to skid. It was instinctive. It was instinctive. So fascinating. So I love analog braking systems. But Brembo believe they've gone a step further now. Sure, analog braking systems are great. We use hydraulics at the moment. When we put our foot on the brake pedal, it mm. pushes hydraulics. It's got a little bit of boost from the engine, from the, the vacuum booster in the engine to add to that. But effectively what but we it's get doing, a, We get a force magnification when we're using hydraulics. Well, that's exactly right. And it's pushing a fluid, hydraulic fluid, down the brake lines and then pushing on the pads onto the disc. That'll make sense and seems to work quite well and very effective in the movies when someone cuts the brake line and oil comes out on the yeah, ground yeah, and, yeah. and away it's, we go. It's a good effect too. <laughs> very good yeah. effect, yes. And then they look at the oil on the ground afterwards and go, aha, oh, that yeah. brake line was cut. But Brembo believe that that's old-fashioned now. What we need instead is electronic braking, and I'm talking about electronic on the actual brake pads themselves. So rather than having yeah, right. a, a liquid, an oil, pushing on those brake pads, actually have an electromagnetic actuator that pushes on each brake pad. Now, why would you want to do that, you ask? That was the first question I thought of. Mm. Because you've got better control over each individual wheel. Add some artificial intelligence. They've got a sexy name for it. Sensify is what they call it. So then each wheel can be individually controlled electronically. You don't think about that as a driver. Yeah, right. Put your foot on the brake. That's it. What the brakes then do is detect if there is any slippage or the grip at each individual wheel and then apply the appropriate amount of brake force so that you don't even get to the point where the wheel is locking up like an analog braking system and then releasing as an ABS does, but it's actually stopping it doing that initial tiny little skid before it happens because it's detecting the movement of that wheel and then releasing that pressure ever so slightly. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess um, in, in any normal situation where you've got to do some heavy braking, that each of your wheels is going to experience a slightly different friction with yeah, the road. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you you step off, you know, you drift off onto the shoulder perhaps yep. of the road um, where you're going to have a bit of gravel um, and a bit of bitumen. I know people have had accidents in having uh, one half on either side of the road. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, either side of the shoulder I should say. So yeah, this is this is amazing sort of technology. So you could, exactly right, you could have two wheels off on the dirt, losing control, whatever it might be, and two on the bitumen, and it would adjust the braking force so you're still getting a slowing down effect from your braking while the brakes at each different wheel are being applied differently. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's using some, let's say, some artificial intelligence, using electronics there. Now, of course, the first thing you say is, well, electronics fail. Well, sure, normal brakes fail as well, but electronics do fail. Brembo feel like they've got that covered, by effectively building in dual systems, just the same way as a plane, as a, a plane that fly-by-wire is set up where it's got dual systems for just about everything on the plane, this is the same. They've got dual ECUs, electronic control units. They've got dual wiring to the brakes. I didn't talk about having dual actuators on the brakes, but I suspect that at some point they will get to that point where they do have dual electronic actuators on each brake itself. So one could fail, one ECU could fail, one bit of wire could wear out, whatever mm. it might be yet you've got it still working because you've got that system replicated better than a hydraulic brake system. You've only got the one brake line going to each brake, for example, in that. So you could actually replicate that much easier, much cheaper and can, more convenient to run separate wires to each of those brakes. And you can also have that wired through to your uh, uh, your early warning system as well to give you a flash on the dashboard to say you've got problems with your brakes and, um, yeah. All of that, yeah. So yeah. I, I am a bit of a fan of electronics. I like the idea of electronics controlling the world. And this to me seems like a really smart step forward mm. to help us in our 
driving. And I suspect that this will be part of the big picture as we move forward. We've got EVs with regenerative braking systems. At the moment, they're kind of separate to our disc. So we've got a regenerative system from our electromagnetic induction in each wheel and the disc brake. They're kind of separate systems in an EV, but this to me seems like you can control the two more accurately together. So that'll change as things go forward. I just think it's a great innovation from Brembo. And But on the movies, when they go to cut the brakes, it's yeah, a little bit more boring. It's I cut the brake line. No, I cut the I cut, wire. I had to fiddle with the computer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's just, again... Finding that right wire that goes to the brakes. Mm. Good luck with that. Blue they'll they'll cut wire. the wrong wire. The blue one. Okay, we know it now. It's that we've given it away. <laughs> but you cut a wire, and then maybe the car doesn't start because they've cut the wrong wire. So <laughs> too complicated for the movies then. But don't expect to buy a car today with this. It's about twenty twenty four before Brembo believes they'll have the first cars out with this. And as so often happens with these sort of technologies, these advances. I imagine the higher-end luxury cars will have it first, the more expensive cars, the sports cars, supercars, etc., and we'll blink and then every car's got it. And every car's got it. Standard. Here's an important story for people who are getting far too much exercise in their life. Matt, I'm concerned that I'm not getting enough screen time. Streaming services, they only offer me seemingly infinite number of hours of movie and television viewing, so um, my question is how can I get more from my streaming service and pack more time in front of the TV? We'd be very pleased to know, James, there is a solution for you. Oh, what a relief. Forget about that exercise, stay inside, because once you finish streaming, well, gaming is the obvious choice, but I've got to then go and use a different console maybe mm. or do something different. That but means no. you've got to get up out of the chair potentially. Oh, terrible, terrible. But Netflix has a solution for you. Oh, what a relief. If you're a Netflix subscriber, you can get all the great movies, the TV shows, all the series that you've been watching, and then you can play games using your Netflix subscription. And even better, it's free oh. for the moment. Okay. Netflix has said nothing about the future, <laughs> but at the moment, if you've got a Netflix subscription... They've got you've to have got, the free hook, haven't they? They That's have it. got to have the free hook. You've got access to five games. They've got two Stranger Things games, actually, Stranger Things 984 and Stranger Things 3. Oh, my wife's already hooked. <laughs> That's it, it's done. Shooting Hoops, Card Blast and Teeter Up. I don't actually know those games. I, I'm familiar with the Stranger <laughs> Things games, but I'm not familiar with the last three. But you've got no five... No Snake or Centipede or whatever. Oh, you'd think they'd go with some classics, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they've got those five games available. They're available on your phone. So you can get away from the screen to get to your other screen, your phone oh, right. screen, and start playing those. Initially, only for Android phones, so not for Apple users, but I can't imagine... It's it only a matter of time. Only a matter of time, that's right. And again, the whole concept here is that they want to own your entire entertainment scenario. You're finished watching shows, you go and start playing games, you're still in that Netflix ecosystem. As we said, free. I imagine that they will get people using them. They'll start to see how much people are using them. And when they get to some sort of magical number, they'll say, now we can start charging for it. It's an add-on. It might just be a couple of dollars add-on to your Netflix subscription, but there'll be an add-on in there somewhere. Because they can. Because they can. And once they've got you, they've got you. Yeah, that's right. So keep an eye out for that. Have a play. It's just another way of staying connected to friends, family, whatever, but... Gaming is there as part of the Netflix ecosystem. And it won't be long before the other streaming services will take it up as well. And, yeah, there's no reason to go outside at all. That's right. Absolutely right. Now, it's happening, folks. The predicted death of the weekend, that dead-end technology of the electric vehicle, is increasing in demand. And EV sales are predicted to outstrip diesel sales, in the UK at least, in 2022. Matt, the UK is a long way from Australia, but... 
Perhaps Scott Morrison is um, set to lose his allure as the forecaster of the future now. <laughs> Did he ever have that allure? <laughs> <laughs> the doomsday of the future, I might more accurately reflect on his time, but maybe I'm a little bit biased because he really just didn't like he's, electric cars. Did yeah, he? he's really not helped the electric car. <laughs> not at all. And and other parts of that whole climate change environment. But let's, we're getting off topic. Moving off. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to be political here. We're, we're back so, to technology. So tell me, yeah, the UK is about to, um, yeah, the, the, well, electric vehicles are going to outstrip diesel. That's right. I remember, it wasn't that long ago it seemed to me that diesel cars across Europe and across the UK mm. were going to be the solution to our future because diesel cars are more energy efficient. You get better mileage out of a diesel car. So that's where we want to go. And there were many models of cars that were introduced in Europe only in diesel, or they may have been only available in Europe as a diesel model, not available anywhere else in the world. So diesel was going to be the European solution. And now, in the next year, in the UK, which is not known for being entirely progressive with some areas of society, electric cars are going to outsell them. Now, Boom. the, the Mic drop right there. <laughs> that's right. Now, the numbers are pretty impressive. There's still, next year, they say... The predictions are that about 220,000 diesel cars will be sold. But next year, the estimation is that 260,000 electric vehicles will be sold. So not too yeah, bad in terms of getting forward with the numbers there. And look, I do hate talking about the UK being better than Australia because <laughs> we have the cricket coming up and, of course, the ashes and we always like the competition. But there's a few things we've talked about lately where the UK seems to be getting parts of it right and we seem to be getting, getting parts run, of it wrong. Uh, run down and left behind. So just to give you some other figures, that are quite interesting, nearly 10% of new car sales this year have been electric. Now, that's gone up from 5.5% last year. So that's a pretty big jump from yeah, last nice. year to this year. I mean, prior to Australia, we're still you know, less than 1%. Shh. It's a very small number, a bit embarrassing. But it still wasn't that long ago in the UK. It was only 2%. So they've jumped pretty quickly from 2 to 55 to 10 And I think this is what happens, James. Once people start to be comfortable with it, once you get prominence, not saying it's going to wreck everything in your life, mm. Then you get to the point where people go, wow, these are actually really good. And there's a whole range of positive reasons to buy one. And numbers start to go through the roof quite quickly. And once your neighbour's got an electric vehicle, then uh, you look over your fence and you think, oh, that's not so bad. I think I might get one myself. Especially if his name's Jones, because you've got to keep <laughs> up with the Joneses, haven't you? But you're right. I think it is a part of that. Your friend gets one. You notice one down the street. You hear about one. You hear about someone. See that, someone driving a big ute that's an electric ute. Yep. Yeah. All of that. And so that's really taking off across Europe. They're going quite well with EV sales, and some countries are well and truly over the 50%, have been for some time now in terms of new car sales. But for the UK to get there, to get that 10% mark this year and to keep going ahead of diesel next year, it's happening, James. It's happening. You can stand there like if you want to try at the ocean and put your hand up and say, I don't want the tide <laughs> to come it. in. Yeah, yeah. But it's going to happen, and it's going to happen faster it's than you realise. It's a house of cards. It's a house of cards. It's falling down. Get a load of this. E-bikes are not just a quirky mode of get about for city commuters. High-speed models have been developed and indeed they've caught the eye of the Australian Defence Force who are trialling them in North Queensland for, get this, battlefield operations. Matt, this would have made a great skit in the comedy company 30 years ago, but this is the real deal. This is the real deal. Imagine being out in the battlefield and being told to get on your oh, push bike yeah. and <laughs> take this bit of important information over that we don't want stolen by yeah. electronic communication means or you've got something physical you need to get from A to B, so you get on a push bike and you're right, I can just see Monty Python yeah, or Benny yeah. Hill or someone having a funny <laughs> skit with someone riding along and avoiding all the 
fire that was coming at him. Yeah. But this is real. And the bikes are pretty impressive. Maybe there's a, a job there actually for someone like Cadell Evans in the Defence Forces. Maybe that's their, their pictures. <laughs> Get these keen cyclists out there. But it's called a B-52. I'm not sure if there's some reference to a bomber from many When years I first ago. read that, I was thinking, yeah, well, hang on, what's this reference to B-52? But it's cool anyway. I, I don't know where the numbers come from apart from maybe someone having some fun with old names there. But it's a heavy bike. It's a 51-kilogram bike. So you think, wow, that's a pretty heavy push bike. I mean, my push bike is about six or seven kilograms in, in weight. So this is pretty massive. But the reason they do that is because it's got a big battery and a big motor, but you sit on top of it riding it. And mm. you, you first think, well, why wouldn't you just go on a motorbike? Because surely mm. that's kind of the same as this, but you don't have the trouble of pedaling on a motorbike, so wouldn't that be better? But the idea here is that it creates a very small footprint for noise and also a very small footprint for the amount of dust or the amount of movement you might have. Yeah, so right. it's much harder for the enemy to pick you up. And you've also got that ability... If you run out of petrol on a motorbike, then you're stuck with a heavy thing that you, I don't know, you hide behind or you run away and yeah. hide in the trees. At least this, even if the battery does go completely flat, you still can ride. It'd be hard work with 51 kilograms that you've got to push along, but it'd be hard work. But the range of it's pretty impressive, 100 kilometer range on it. They talk about the, the riders of these getting about 90 kilometers an hour. So you've got good speed from A to B, 2000 kilowatt hour battery in it. So that's a fair size battery and a 6.52 kilowatt hub motor in it. So that's a fair-sized motor. When we talked about the motor in the Manta 5, the hydrofoil bike at the beginning of the, this podcast, it had a 640-watt motor. This has got a 6.52-kilowatt hub motor, yeah, so wow. effectively about 10 times the speed or the power of that motor. And 90 k's an hour, that's it's a hell of a speed it? to get the speed wobbles, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it looks pretty impressive. I, I think we'll see this sort of thing used as well out in commuter world. I think people would love to commute on something like this. There's a fine line there. You wouldn't be able to, allowed to go 90 kilometres an hour without some sort of bike licence, motorbike licence mm. type thing because it's a pretty close definition between a push bike and a motorbike. <laughs> you but can be out on the freeway on that. That's right. That's exactly right. But e-bikes have got certain limitations on them if you want to be able to ride it on a road and not have a motorbike licence to use them. It, it, there's a bunch of rules. I won't go through them all. But effectively, you can't just sit there on an e-bike and turn the throttle and go along at 90 k's an hour. Mm. This thing here is more about convenience of getting people around. But yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Only produces 65 decibels of noise. So that's not much louder then you and I having a conversation now. Yeah, Again, right. makes it very hard for the enemy to detect this bike as it goes about its work and delivering things from A to B. So pretty cool, pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and I love my bikes. It doesn't make me want to join the Defence Forces, but there are so many different jobs for people in the Defence Forces. It'll be interesting to, to find out, you know, what applications it actually does get um, from the ADF. But, uh, yeah, and whether or not in the heat of battle, um, people are getting around on their treadleys. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, look, e-bikes are really going through the roof in terms of sales at the moment. Even even in America where you don't have this image of people, not like the Netherlands, you don't see lots of people in America getting on their push bikes. But to give you an idea, they had about half a million sales of e-bikes last year in America. And in comparison to cars, they bought about 230,000 electric cars in America last year. So they bought basically twice as many e-bikes as electric cars in America <laughs> last year. Now, listen, I also saw a video of uh, Richard Hammond uh, racing against a competitive cyclist. And so Richard Hammond was on one of these e-bikes and yep. he just left this guy for dead. Yeah, you know, wow. Matching each other. Uh, and then he let the, uh, yeah, well, he turned on the electric uh, motor there and just left Away him. Away went, yeah. yeah. And the only advantage the crazy. real cyclist has, the Cadell Evans, if you like, is that their battery doesn't go flat. <laughs> so you can be on an e-bike and racing along going fantastically and your battery goes flat and then you just got a heavy bike. Yeah. <laughs> 
Mark Zuckerberg and the happy team at Facebook are taking steps towards increasing privacy in social media as they look at deleting all the face recognition data. Matt, I've always looked at social media as a media as a surrender of privacy. It's a bit of an oxymoron to talk about privacy and social media, isn't it? It seems that way, but I think Facebook is copying such a hammering from so many different angles lately mm. that they're trying to do things to recover from a PR perspective. Even if it's like a token sort it of thing. It sometimes seems that way, doesn't it? But <laughs> I think that's where they're at. That's, well, I think it's true. I think that's where we're at where they're saying, we'll do this and we'll change this because not because it's the right thing to do, but because we're copying some hammering over here and that'll keep them mm. quiet. And I suspect it's a bit like that. They've got about a billion face prints. In terms of a database, forget the FBI, forget someone, police Go database. Oh, that's right. If you wanted to search for something and maybe, I don't know, some of those organisations have talked to Facebook from time to time and said, we need to find this face. We don't have any data. And they are sure. James Eddy, there's his face. <laughs> Happy <Bang>. days. <laughs> but they've got a billion people that they're going to delete all that data. Now, you may have noticed recently that the tagging, the automatic tagging feature, that's already been turned off. And that's where someone posts a photo and then it sends an email or sends a note to you to say, oh, you've been, been tagging tagged, this photo. Yeah. Do you want to accept that? Do you want to put that on your profile or post that or whatever you want to do with it? But it's automatically done that in the past. That's been turned off because they got sued by a gentleman in America who said, I didn't like the fact that you automatically tagged me in that photo. And of course, what do Americans do when they're not happy about something? They just sue someone. <laughs> so they sued Facebook. They were successful in that. So Facebook went, hmm, this might be a bit of an issue for us going forward. Isn't that crazy though? <laughs> I mean, like getting yourself a Facebook profile is like building yourself a, a house made out of windows, like a, <laughs> a glass house on the side of a highway. And then having a shot at the local government because there's too much traffic going past looking through your windows. <laughs> You're probably right. I like it. <laughs> well, it's worse than that. It's it's a glass house on a highway that's then all around the world as well. Yeah, so. that's right. So everyone in the world drives past your house and yeah. they all look through your windows and you don't like it. Yeah. And what's interesting is that about a third of Facebook's users have said, it's okay that you use my face. So even though they were sued, even mm. though they're going to delete all this data, exactly as you said, most people will go, well, well I accept the fact that I'm in a glass house. Then you just got to surrender. Yeah, that's right. Or so, get off Facebook. Or get off Facebook. So a third of people had surrendered, but despite that fact, Facebook is still saying, we're going to delete all that data and not have that as part of our database. Now, whether you can trust them to do that or not. I've said the, the dirty T word associated with Facebook, uh. <laughs> but they've said they're going to delete all that data. You might say, well, look, keep it all there and just don't use it. But no, they're going to delete it. Mm. And imagine the technician giving that job. Right, Jimmy, <laughs> go in and just delete that data, will you? Oh, whoops, I didn't mean to delete that data. Sorry about that. It's a pretty scary thing when you go into yeah. a database of that size and say, delete. I'm sure there's a few steps you've got to go through and Goodness a couple me. of combined codes to add in a bit like launching a nuclear weapon before you go and delete any of Facebook's data. Because you wouldn't want someone new on the job just started last week and accidentally <laughs> clicks delete. And, <laughs> whoops, sorry about that. <laughs> well, they need someone that they scapegoat there. So when something does go wrong, yeah, they, true. Yeah, they can easily hang him. Video and computer games have tr transcended the bounds for which they were originally developed. Whether you like to admit it or not, they've woven themselves into the modern social fabric as not only a source of entertainment, but also as skill builders and outlets for competition. And in the modern age, they serve as a, real, a really important conduit for connection between family and friends. Matt, talk us through what it means to be a modern gamer. It is interesting. There's three ways you can define the term gamer. And the image that most people have, and I must admit it's my image because I look at my son when he plays games, it's that someone who's intense and they're competitive and they're really 
engulfed in that whole gaming world and you can talk to him and say, by the way, son, I just thought I'd give you $1,000 to go shopping with today and he wouldn't hear you because he's so busy playing <laughs> no, the game. So that's, It's intense. It's, it's an intense, intense experience. That's right. yeah. And that's my first impression I have when I think of a gamer. But that's one type of gamer. And secondly, there's someone who just plays a lot of video games. They're not really that intense into it. They play them for a bit of fun. Mm. Instead of watching TV, they get on and play their Netflix games, whatever it might be. <laughs> and the third one is someone who just doesn't even think of themselves as a gamer, but just plays games from time to time. Oh, sure, I'll have a game with you, son, or mm. I'm sitting here waiting in a queue somewhere and I just pull out my phone and play. Incidental, a, yeah. Yeah, that's right. A bit of Candy Crush or whatever it might be. And they're still gamers. And so those three different categories are fairly distinct. But if you start to break it down, in Australia there are 17 million people who are gamers, if you like those all those three broad categories there, which is an incredible number of people when you consider our population is about 25 million and there's probably some people who are not quite old enough to hold a computer or a keyboard yeah. or, a, or a phone yet, then 17 million means that most people are probably That's a big there. marketplace. It is, yeah. a very big marketplace. So again, you think you're right into the games, you've you got this 18-year-old in a darkened room playing games, but when you look at it, the average gamer is 35 years old, 46% of gamers are female, which is not that typical image you have, and 11% of gamers are 65 to 84. Wow. So think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and we do see a little bit in, in one of my businesses when people do come in in that age group, that 65 plus age group, and they've typically got a tablet. They've got an iPad, they've got a, a tablet, or an Android tablet of some description, and they'll typically come in and they'll show you the games they're playing. Sometimes it's solitaire. Sometimes yeah, it's I was going to say, game. solitaire's got to be getting a bit of a flogging here, hasn't it? It does, but I'm also impressed with some of the other games that some of these people play, and I've seen games I've never heard of that they come in and they show me some game they're playing. Oh, it's a pretty cool game, actually. Where'd you find that one? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm in my games a bit, and I go searching and try and find some new ones. So there are a whole bunch of different people. But gaming is now number two in our general entertainment. Number one is streaming. So streaming's blown Still away, free to air. So sitting down, watching some streaming in front of the TV, that's number one for our home entertainment. Number two is now gaming. Number three, and being left further and further behind, is good old-fashioned free-to-air TV. Oh, so don't take away my free-to-air. <laughs> I'm not taking it away, James. Uh, yeah, I'm not taking it away. Number three, I'm worried that it's going to slip down to six or seven or ten or twenty. Or <laughs> well, go, well, why are we even doing it anymore? Well, and that's the problem, isn't it? And I'm not even convinced that it will necessarily drop a long way down in the rankings, but the gap between mm. one and two and then down to three – I think is widening, and that's a bit of the problem for free-to-air executives. Back in the old days, free-to-air was yeah. a, a license to print money in the Kerry Packer days of Channel 9. Yep. He used to laugh at how much money he used to make out of this concept of selling some airtime. It was just, wow, I'm selling nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what a great concept. But that's obviously changing quite dramatically. So gaming is certainly interesting, but exactly as you mentioned at the beginning, gaming is not just used for sitting in front of a TV, sitting on my computer, and diving into a world that's unknown to me. It's also a way that people are connecting. And during the lockdowns, there's been some information with some surveys that have been done. And a lot of people said that gaming was the way they stayed connected, playing interactive games, online interactive games in particular. And the kids are there playing with their friends that they can't see anymore, but they still want to be in contact with. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the modern telephone, isn't it? Much fewer people are just sitting there having conversations on yeah. a telephone now. Yep. Um, it's happening over the, the course of a game of Call of Duty or something. Well, that's right. And I actually, I'll, I'll be incredibly sexist here. I find that males aren't great at just ringing up and saying, 
Hi, James. How are you going today? What's happening? Because <laughs> then you say, what do you want, Matt? What are you, what yeah. are you after? <laughs> yeah, there's something, there's, there's a motive here. You would need to borrow my lawnmower or something. You don't, you don't just ring up for a chat. <laughs> no, you don't. But if I ring you and said, hi, James, I've got half an hour killed. Do you want to jump online and play a game? You'd go, oh, sure. Right. And you're playing a game. And while you're doing that, you're having a conversation. And that's what they're finding a lot of people are doing or have been doing over the last 18 months is having that gaming conversation, staying in touch without really having to open up my feelings and say, I just want to have a chat to you, James, because I'm a bit lonely, but I can play yeah. a game with you yeah. and no one questions that. It's all okay. So that's a really important part of what we've been doing. So family, friends are all staying in touch. And I've even done it with my kids where we've done some gaming, some online gaming, because we have been away and we want to keep up to date with each other or in touch. You only ask how many times how their studies are going. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then you know, Dad, you've asked me that already. So just having that sort of interaction there, I think, is nice. And I think from my son's perspective, um, if you've just blown three hours away uh, on the playing computer games with your mates, there's less guilt associated with it because you've done it with your mates and yeah. you've been interacting with your mates. Yeah, that's right. It does feel a bit lonely, doesn't it? I've just had a great three hours by myself by playing myself. a game. Yeah, secluded. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, so, it's the new way, I guess. Is. Now, the Volkswagen ID3 is an EV game changer, folks. We're going to hear a bit more about that in a minute, but don't get too excited. Volkswagen explains that they're not going to bring it to Australia. Matt, what's turned their nose up to we humble folk down under? Well, unofficially they've said it's our government. There's demand for electric cars across the world, and there's demand for the ID3. It is a game changer in the EV world. And I think VW, as much as I was disappointed with VW with the whole Dieselgate affair, mm. VW have said, okay, we've got it wrong. They've admitted that. We were going to take over the world. We're going to blow a toy out of the world, out of the water, because we're going to be better than them, but we couldn't do it, so we cheated. Right. We'll learn our lesson. But, but that, that problem was also with uh, a petrol-powered model as well, wasn't it? It was with the emissions. The emissions, all the emissions and cheating on the emissions to be so. able to get the better fuel economy, better power, Oh, damn, the emissions aren't quite as good with those two, so we'll just cheat on the emissions. Well, we can, we can sweep that under the carpet now because we're talking about EVs. Correct. And I think what VW have done, which is a clever move, is to say, we got it wrong. Sure, we've had to pay out some money, but we've damaged our reputation, and that takes yeah. a long time to repair. Sure. Our future is, we've got to go EV, and Toyota aren't, so we will, and let's throw a whole bunch of money in towards the EV market. And we're a big company. We know how to manufacture. Tesla don't know how to manufacture at the same volumes that someone like a V-Dub does. Mm. So why don't we go and get that right? So they're, they're doing that, and they're doing a really good job on that. And the ID3 is one that really is changing that whole face of the EV market. Now, the problem for us here in little old Australia is that V-Dub have said there's demand for this product across the world. We are going to prioritise countries that have got emissions targets, or just one emission target, if you like, not even targets, target, <laughs> to just have something <laughs> something there that says we've got some vague interest in progressing our country forward with emissions, with mm. climate change, with their vehicles they're driving. So, oh, Australia, you don't have that, so we're not going to bring the ID3 to you because we're focusing on countries that seem to be mm. doing the right thing, which is interesting. Now, the ID3 is fantastic let me talk about it briefly it's kind of around a nissan leaf cost around that say forty five fifty thousand dollar mark so you say well that's good that's getting to be somewhat affordable but it's certainly much better performing than a nissan leaf and not quite as good as say a tesla but it's certainly dramatically cheaper than a tesla so they've got a good sweet spot there people get scared off from the tesla because of the price but in terms of the range you've got a range that's 
similar to the lower end Tesla models, around 400 kilometres. Most people are really comfortable with 400 kilometres. You're yeah. not often going to get in the car and drive for 400 kilometres in one hit without at least having some break somewhere just for a coffee. Mm. You shouldn't be driving that distance without having something. It's got reasonable performance, you know, zero to 100 sort of performance is, is quite reasonable. Again, not Tesla-like, but better than a Leaf. But even the speed, the top speed, which I find interesting, you see the speedometer on an old-fashioned car that doesn't have a digital speedo, and it's got 250 on there. Yeah. And you think, well, the relevance of that, the only time I'm going to get 250 is if I drive off a cliff somewhere. I'm never going to get to 250. Or even when they... But it's the thought that I could if I wanted to. <laughs> it may be. Yeah. And, and get caught and lose my licence in a heart. But you'd, you'd have a, a policeman drawing the gun on you if you went to that sort of or, speed. Or launch into the air. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But even when they say we've speed capped this car to 250 or to 220 or whatever it is, you just think, well, irrelevant here. Maybe yeah. on autobahns, maybe yeah. when they sell them for European countries or for Europe when you've got autobahns, but for here, just totally irrelevant. This is speed kept to 160 kilometres an hour. And you think, well, that's okay. I really am going to struggle to see... I'm going to hit that speed. That's right. Ever? Maybe if I was in a, a desperate situation, I was overtaking, and the car was coming at me, I might need to yeah. jump on the accelerator and go as fast as I could and then look down and go, oh, no, I'm going a bit too fast. But you're right. When do you need to go that sort of speed? Never. So they've done that, I think, as a deliberate process to say, we are looking after the passenger, the world, everything... We don't need cars to go 250. Why are we going to engineer this car to do that when we don't need to engineer it to go that far? Yeah. Now, some cars like Porsche have a gearbox so that you've got the electric motor, which is spinning at a constant speed, and you've just got a two-speed gearbox. Most electric vehicles only have a one-speed motor, but it then has to spin much faster. You've got to engineer it to be able to spin that much faster. In the ID3, they said, we don't need to. Why to put all that engineering into place so we can say it goes to 250, knowing that no one driving this will ever go to mm. 250. So that makes sense. Uh, in general, I think you've got um, a faster, a reasonable fast charge. DC charge, it takes about 30 minutes to add 250 kilometres of charge. So all the things that people are saying we need to get right, they've pretty much got it right in this. The pricing's pretty reasonable. The, the range is good. The acceleration is good. None of those things are the best in market, but as a package, a really attractive package. And that's where you're seeing... Places like the UK that we talked about before, getting to that point where they've got a car, or sorry, the EVs are going well because they're getting the combination of the pricing and the range and all these parts. So ID3, I would love to see it in Australia. When people say to me, I want to buy an EV, I don't want to buy a Tesla, too much money, what do I buy? I tell them lots of different choices, but nothing stands out to be the best all-rounder. This is the sort of car that would. This is going close. If only, if only yeah. we had, maybe someone should give Scott Morrison one that he can go out and have a good weekend in and say, yeah, these are actually quite fun. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Only time will tell, I guess. And with that, people, it's time for us to turn and burn. We've got to get out here before the cleaners arrive and start hosing the joint down. So as the kids would say... Thanks for another banging mix, Matt. Uh, my pleasure. And a bit of rain around at the moment, and our river's fairly full, so I yeah. want to go and get one of those Manta 5s and see how it goes down <laughs> a raging river. I just think that'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? That'd <laughs> be fantastic with the current. With the current, now you're oh, talking. Yeah. 22Ks now, forget that. With the current, it'll be going 30 with no trouble. All right, folks, as per usual, I've been your host, James Eddy, and don't forget to like and subscribe.